Let's start by turning in our Bibles to Romans 8.28. Again, we're going to go through the uh, uh, faith rest drill. We've uh, looked at that, and I like to go through it each Thursday night before we get into the lesson for the evening, uh, because after all, this is one of the chief um, tactics or uh, coping devices in the Christian life. And so, um, remember, we, we looked at this uh, faith rest drill is in three parts, that we remember or recall uh, a fragment of Scripture, a promise, a verse, a chapter, whatever we have carried around in our memory. And uh, we're in the middle of a situation where we pull out that fragment of Scripture. And the second step is to go through a rationale of circulating that verse in your mind's eye until you can come to the third step, which is a relaxed confidence that that is going to hold, that that verse, that truth, is an absolute truth. There's nothing in our circumstance or your circumstance that's going to change it. Nobody can change it. It's God's Word. And there is no alternative to that truth. So step one is claim the promise, um, recall the promise. The third one is working through the rationale of the promise. And the third is to get to the point where you can trust and have that resting trust in the Word. And so we've looked at some of the uh, verses. Remember we went through Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, we looked at the verse there about um, God shall renew the strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And that dealt largely with the mental attitude of a believer. Romans 8.28 is far more complicated. And so we're going to spend a few, the front end of a few lessons on Romans 8.28. Um, probably at least next time. So we'll have done it for three times. But if you look at um, this verse you'll see that uh, it makes a very stupendous claim. It's claiming that all things, not some things. So that's the first thing you notice about Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. But they work together for good to a class of people, namely those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things work together for good for all people. It says all things work together for good to them that are called according to God's purpose, that is, believers. And when we look at this, we notice tonight what a, one of the rationale things that maybe in a situation where you would claim this, there would be a problem accepting it and relaxing and trusting it at the point where it says, all things work together for good to them that love God. Might have a grasp of the fact that God is sovereign, God is in control. The question, however, might be in a situ tactical situation in life that, well, uh, I'm not so sure this thing is working together for good. So if that's the situation, then what do you do? Okay, again, step one, we recall the promise. Now, the promise is going around our head in the middle of this situation that we may be involved with, but it just, it just sticks, sticks right there at good. That you really, if you're honest with yourself, can't say that I really believe it's working together for good right now. So if that's the case, you can't get to step three in the drill because you can't get to the point where you can, in relaxed trust and rest and faith rest in that verse at that point. So, you have to go back around step two again and cycle around and say, okay, now why, why am I having a problem with this? Why is it that I cannot believe that this situation, this circumstance, is working to good? And by the way, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the situation is good. It says it works together for good. So, watch the language in that verse. It's saying there's a good purpose in it. It doesn't say the thing itself is good. 
All right, now, we want to review something and, and go back because our, our purpose for this, you'll see later on as we go further into the Ascension and, and uh, the Pentecost thing with the church age and so on, why I'm doing this. It won't be apparent right now, but there's a purpose I have in mind. Um, we go back when we do these rationales, the thing to do is go back into that frame of reference that we've developed. Go back and think through some event and a cluster of doctrine associated with that event that applies. Well, if we're dealing with something good and we can't believe it, what does that tell you? Where does that lead you in the framework? If you, if you have problem with saying that this thing is working together for good, it's a case of good and evil. Well, now, wait a minute, good and evil, where does that fit as you go back through the frame of reference? Well, we said back, where, where was it that we dealt with evil first? It was the fall. And if you remember back when we dealt with that fall, we had a little section in the notes in which I identified uh, some nine rationales for coping with a good evil situation. So we want to review these because this would be part, you could, you know, you wouldn't have all nine of these going, but you might be able to think of one or two of them in a situation. Now let's review those and remember that when we dealt with a fall, we're dealing with the fact that God is superintending a purpose in history to bring about the ultimate separation of good and evil the eternal separation of good and evil. That's where history is going. And when he created, it wasn't, there was no evil there. So we're in this bracketed area of history right now. So since we're dealing with that, what, while we're living inside that zone, what can we say about the purposes that God is working in, in, inside that? We know he's working eternally, but what is he doing right now? Okay, there, we divided it up into areas where the suffering that I am encountering is directly my responsibility. I've caused the problem. Versus some situations that are indirect in that, really, you didn't cause the problem. It seems to just all of a sudden entered your life. Under the direct situation, there's at least four categories. You might be able to find more, but we just listed these four. Four illustrations or four case studies of, of situations where we cause our own misery. The first one, if you think about it, what's the first one in history? Because we all share that. We were all in Adam, and we all fell in him. So the first category is Genesis 2.17, which says, In the day that you eat thereof, you will die. Now you remember that. Next time you see, uh, read something about I, somebody in the Navy sent me uh, what it looked like when they went in the mess hall five minutes after the explosion on the USS Cole, and this female officer, the first thing she saw was a piece of leg hanging off the ceiling. And then everything went downhill from that point. Uh, she was picking up body parts for the first 15 feet while she had to walk all over the, the meat in order to get to some people that were pinned against the wall. Um, so this was the mess. And so when you see that kind of thing, and it, it's just very graphic, and it's very shocking because it happens quickly, it happens with just no forewarning whatsoever, uh, when you face that kind of a situation, see the mess, or you see the 747 that fried half the people in, at Taipei Airport in Formosa there, um, the thing to do is think back. Instead of getting angry at God about it, which people, we all intuitively try to do that, because that's the flesh, what did God say back here in Genesis 2.17? He said, in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. And when that sentence was executed, it includes all this. It includes genetic defects. It includes all kinds of accidents that happen. It includes horrible suffering. It includes a sickness. It includes all the rest of it. So whose fault is this now? Let's get the shoe on the right foot. And Satan will, will cause, a, cause you to get off balance about right at this point. 
Because the first thought that you will find bouncing around your head is it's God's law. How could God let this happen? What did he say? He said, yeah, I'm going to let it happen. You eat thereof, you break, you defy my words as the human race, then the human race has shares the destiny and the destiny is shared right there. See, it goes back to personal responsibility and this time, personal responsibility for the whole human race, corporately speaking. And we don't like to hear that kind of word. That's not really nice because remember, the pagan mind, the flesh, mind of flesh, always tries to get rid of responsibility in some way, some gimmick, some argument, some phony rationale to get rid of responsibility before God. So the first thing you, we can do in all things work together for good. I mean, if you were the female officer I'm talking about, and apparently she was a Christian, walks in there, does this work together for good? Kind of hard to claim that one in the middle of the Mass, isn't it? Well, the first thing you have to realize is that the suffering was directly induced right here at the fall. And as a Christian, you can claim that and the non-Christian can't because the non-Christian doesn't accept the fall. And so the non-Christian, while he may laugh at you and he may attack the scriptures and make fun of your faith, he's the one that is pathetic. He or she actually sits out there and has no explanation whatsoever. For all they know, this has gone on for millions of years. You know, when the, when the apes were eating bananas, they fell out of the tree and broke their neck. And then before them, something happened in the evolutionary chain. So it's always been going on. So, hey, what's the problem? You got a problem? Why you got a problem? It's always been here, always will be here. So what's your problem? And, and that's the non-Christian only alternative to this. See, there's not too many alternatives in life. You look, think down to the basics. There's only one or two ways you can go. Okay, another way, uh, verse of Galatians 6, 7 to 8. Whatsoever man sows, that shall also reap. There's a direct consequence, and that can be applied to individuals and families. And we can also repeat it on the larger scale that nations get what they deserve. So, individuals and families get what they deserve, and nations get what they deserve. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Whatsoever a marriage sows, that shall it also reap. Whatsoever a nation shows, that shall it also reap. It's the law of the harvest. So, God uh, has harvesting time. And that's cause-effect. And we don't like to hear that one either, because again, personal responsibility. And then, of course, the one thing that we do hate, Matthew 25, 41, which is uh, the sentence of, all, of uh, every unbeliever in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we don't like to hear that either. See, we don't like to hear any of this. This is all politically incorrect stuff because the flesh wants an excuse. Always wants an excuse. And you see, in the coping strategy of Romans 8.28, one of these four... Well, number four won't be because remember Romans 8.28 excludes, excludes the fourth category because this is talking about those who love God, those who call according to his purpose. But the first three can all be involved. And in order to manage those thoughts, you have to subdue them with the word of God. And here are three rationales that at least begin to give an order to what would appear to be just a chaotic, meaningless shocking, uh, unpredicted mess that's happened. And it may not be a total chaos because we have these rules, these are principles that are going to operate. And then we have a stranger set of rules or cases. We have five. And we went through these back when we were going through the fall, just repeating them now. There are five reasons why suffering can come into our lives, maybe more. I mean, this is not an exclusive list. Um, one reason for suffering coming into a life is a wake-up call evangelistically. I mean, I bet you there's some here tonight that you came to know Jesus Christ because of some wake-up call. Some, something went wrong. Something got your attention. So there can be an evangelical wake-up call. Uh, again, an example of that is Acts 16 with a jailer. You got a wake-up call, and he—he he, apparently he was the kind of guy that uh, 
that the only way God could get his attention is to hit him over the head with a two-by-four. So in that case, that was an evangelistic wake-up call. This man was in danger of losing his life because of the prisoners escaping from his jail. So, so that's one reason. It's undeserved in the sense that uh, God's being very gracious to allow it to happen, to call us to himself. So that's what we call the evangelistic wake-up call. And that's one reason why something can happen. Uh, again, thinking of, of say, uh, a sailor on the USS Cole. What would be one purpose for him maybe having his leg amputated? Getting pinned behind the thing and getting pulled out and going to the hospital and never being able to walk on that leg again. Maybe it was because God said, hey, are you looking up or are you looking down? Well, that's a pretty cruel way of getting his attention. Well, maybe that's the only thing that would get his attention. We don't know. And we're not saying this happened to everybody. All I'm saying is that when we analyze suffering, you have to think of at least nine different ways. Maybe you can think of some more. But there are at least nine in the scripture here. A second one is, and this is a good one, so let's, this applies so often to each of us. So let's turn to Psalm 119 a minute. Psalm 119, verse 71. And all we're doing is we're going through the faith rest drill and we're asking ourselves, why is this true for me in my situation? And I, I've got to, I, I got to think. I, the Christian life is not some uh, drugged, a zombieic existence. You know, in the Bible, we're going to get into it later on, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's be not drunk with wine, we're in excess. You could say today, you know, what are you smoking? Uh, what are you taking? And whatever it is, there's always some form of anesthesia, if you think about it. Every drug, every uh, undue use of alcohol, uh, all of that ultimately is an anesthetization against the pain of life. And it's an admission that we can't cope. It's an admission that we're not managing pain and we live in a fallen world. And so we're going to cop out and tune out as creatures made in God's image and uh, go the animal route of anesthetizing our brains, uh, frying them probably, so that it creates permanent brain damage for the rest of our life. Well, the Bible says there are reasons for this, and we have to be alert to those reasons. Psalm 119, verse 71, is a classic. It was good for me that I was afflicted. See, that was the good there. It worked together for good. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn thy statutes. That's an excellent memory verse. Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. In other words, I don't learn them any other way. And it's, it's, it's the hard way. But uh, reason number two is it's a nudging. I call it that the nudging. The nudging to growth. Psalm 119, 71. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but we don't have time tonight because this is just supposed to be a review drill. Another reason is 1 Timothy 1.16, we won't have to turn there because again, because of time, but you can look it up. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, we have a pattern for those who look on our lives who are unbelievers. And it acts as a witness to neighbors and friends and acquaintances with our life who are unbelievers. So that's another reason why this, whatever it is, can work together for good to them that love God, to them that call according to His purpose. Part of a ministry of witnessing, different from reason one. Reason one, it's, it's the person that's suffering. And reason three, it's for an onlooker to the person who's suffering. So reason number three is a witness uh, to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 1.4 is a fourth reason that we may comfort others with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted. And that's the idea of being able to minister to other believers 
out of what you have learned in a suffering situation, that you can pass on the truth, and it's, it's real because you've gone through it. You've walked down that hallway, and you can share that with someone else. Now, whether they accept it or not is another story, but the point is that there is a purpose in this. And then finally, the most mysterious of all, Ephesians 3.10. A fifth reason why we may be suffering has absolutely nothing to do with us, it has absolutely nothing to do with onlookers. It has nothing to do whatsoever with other believers. It has to do with unseen principalities and powers that are watching. Ephesians 3.10 So, think about these when you go through a faith rest drill with something like Romans 8.28. Here are nine different reasons, nine different things, actually, nine minus one here, uh, eight, that you can think about. Does this situation work together for good? Well, gee, you know, I never thought about Mary over here. You know, maybe, maybe I'm getting clobbered because she's going to learn something from this. So what this does, it opens up your mind to the possibilities of what God can be doing in this situation. And it becomes easier now to believe Romans 8.28. Because now you have to, oh, gee, I didn't think about that either. Maybe God's doing this. And the more you look at this, you'll, you'll see as... Those of you who have been Christians for some time probably have already concluded. You ever notice when God does one thing, He does a hundred other things? At the same time, you know, we have a hard time doing more than two or three things at the same time. But it's interesting, if you look back at different events in your life, or different situations you know about, and you watch how the Spirit has worked, you'll see that He works multiply, in a very complex fashion. One of the things I've been trying to tell Mike, from based on my experience years ago as a pastor, was that, and you get this flack all the time at Christian preaching courses, and it's that way well, you can't do, you can't go verse by verse. Nonsense. The scriptures were written verse by verse, and of course you can go verse by verse. That's what the Holy Spirit did. Well, it might not meet the needs of the congregation if you do that. Yes, it will. The most amazing thing is, if you go teach the Word of God verse by verse, for some strange reason, the sanctification of the people in that local church gets synced up somehow with the Scriptures. So, I mean, one Christmas, I laugh, Carol and I laugh about it, but I was going through the book of Deuteronomy, and I was bound in turn, I was going verse by verse, and got into Christmas, and I was on the latrines in Genesis 20-something there on the public health laws. I don't know how the heck am I getting Christmas messages on latrines? And, but the point was that as I was faithful to go through the text, I would have people come up and say, you know, I don't know who told you about my problem, but, and then they go on to narrate how that passage somehow fit their situation. Well, I didn't know what their situation was. I just did the passage. So, that's the point of going through the Scripture. The Spirit wrote it. The Spirit's in charge. The Spirit controls history. It all fits together. So just do it. Okay, so tonight we've gone through, again, a repetitious of the faith rest drill, the three points. Grab a verse. Work with a verse. Until step three, you can relax in faith and trust it. Father, we thank you for these Scriptures, and we pray now as we come to our lesson for the evening that you would open our minds to these great truths concerning the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, in a way, a very mysterious chapter in, our, in the Lord's life that we never could see as we could His life on earth. And so we ask that you would illuminate our hearts to how the apostles have uh, pictured the session through the imagery of the Old Testament. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to go to uh, about three verses before we get to the Old Testament imagery on the session. And one of these verses is uh, found in the uh, Epistle to Hebrews, chapter 4. Uh, we want to look at how the New Testament authors describe the ascension and session. We've, we're studying this first event of the year here and it's one that isn't often mentioned um, I have yet to hear a sermon actually on the ascension and session of Christ um, 
But remember, this has several parts to it. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ went to the Mount of the Ascension. This is the cross section. Jerusalem, the temple was over here. You walk down the Kidron Valley. You walk around the road here. Bethany's over on the other side of this hill. And it's that hill from which the Lord Jesus Christ rose, in, uh, not rose from the dead, but that's what he ascended. His disciples were watching it. All three gospel writers mention it. They're watching, they're watching, they're watching for some minutes. We don't know how long they were watching, whether it was three minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, probably not that long. Two angels appeared next to them after the Lord Jesus was taken up in the cloud, and it's passive voice in the original text, meaning that he was taken, meaning that a cloud sort of enveloped him, and then he disappeared, and you know they're standing there like this, and two angels are saying, hey guys, he's going to come back the same way. Now that little remark by those angels is very important on in the interpretation of this whole thing. That means that Pentecost is not the second advent of Jesus Christ. Because what did the angels say? He went into a cloud. Was Jesus in his body then? Yes, he was. Resurrection body. Physically. He was physically ascending from the mountain. His feet physically left the top of the hill. He ascended. Now the angels, both of them insist to the apostles that he's going to descend the same way he ascended. So that being the case, we now know, and I make this point because liberals in the early 20s kept arguing that the, the real meaning of Jesus coming again was the sending of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost was the fulfillment of the Second Advent. And you have some people even in the evangelical camp that seem to border on the same thing, except instead of making Pentecost the fulfillment of the Second Advent of Christ, they're trying to make the fall of Jerusalem uh, in AD 70 the, the, the fulfillment now. And there's a whole group of evangelicals got on the bandwagon now. AD 70, that's the fulfillment of the Second Advent of Christ. Really? Did Jesus come back like he ascended in 70 AD? I don't think so. No reports of that. Anybody got any historical report? Jesus came back? There's not one report. So how does AD 70 fulfill the second heaven of Christ? So we want to be careful to watch the text. And we're studying the ascension up to this point. Now we don't know whether that's 500 feet, 1,000 feet, or how far it was. But whatever it was, it was a finite interval here, both in time and space, and Jesus disappeared. At that point, all the resurrection appearances of Christ stop. And from that point on, every other time you see Jesus appear to anybody, it's always appearing to them from heaven. He never walks around anymore. He never appears in rooms anymore. He never reaches out and says, touch me. Feel that I'm not a spirit, I have flesh and bones. None of that anymore. Paul on the Damascus Road, he sees him as a great light. Stephen, while he's being stoned, he opens his eyes and so on. So you're, you're all familiar with that. All right. This is, this is the ascension. Now, the ascension was physically watched. What next happens, no man has seen other than in a vision form. And that is what happened after Jesus ascended to 500 feet, 800 feet, 1,000 feet, or however high it was off that mountain. What happened then? He disappeared. He's not empirically observable. But the Bible goes on to add a whole new picture called the session. And this session is not reported as an eyewitness event. The apostles are not saying, I saw Jesus sit at the Father's right hand. What they're doing is they're using new Old Testament images. But in order to go from the ascension to the session, the Bible in at least three places, and I'll show you those three right now, in at least three places, the Bible insists that something strange went on between the time of the end of the ascension and the time of the session and the seat of the Father's right hand. In Hebrews 4.14, let's read that. Since we have a great high priest, and I'll ask you uh, about it, uh, just to observe something in that verse. 
Since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And he goes on with that wonderful encouragement to prayer in verse 16. Uh, for we have not a high priest who can't be touched with a feeling of infirmity and so on. Uh, let us draw near with full confidence because we have a priest who knows everything about us. All our warts, all our problems, and he accepts us. Well, in verse 14, what is strange about that verse? Look carefully. See if you don't notice something interesting about that observation. About what happened between the time that the Jesus left the hill and the time that he sat down at the Father's right hand. What, anybody got noticed something there? Yes. Go ahead. Exactly. And that's, a, that's an interesting observation. He's passing through multiple heavens. And Bible scholars over the years have interpreted that to mean it wasn't just the atmosphere, the physical atmosphere of planet Earth included that. But in the, in the ancient world, if you look at Paul's writings and, and some of the first century writings, they would refer to things like the second heaven and the third heaven. And you kind of have, it's kind of greasy in one sense because you, you kind of got to get the meaning from the usage. But it seems that they thought of the first heaven as the heavens that we can see. The heavens that uh, are the weather area, one I'm interested in, the uh, clouds. And then the second one, was the starry heaven where the sun and the moon were. Great night tonight, by the way. Clear skies, uh, very dry atmosphere, very little light scintillation. You can see the stars. They stand right out tonight, real clear. That's the second heaven. Now, the question is, what's the third heaven? And the third heaven uh, is pictured... Uh, Paul, remember, he says, I don't know whether I went to the third heaven or not. Apparently, that's what they meant by wherever this place is that God's presence in His throne is. Now, you say, well, what, what am I driving at here? I'm driving at a geometry problem. And this is a challenge. Now, here's a case where God's incomprehensibility plays a role. Because I don't know what's happened to you yet, but you'll always, sometime, you'll run across some skeptic They'll sit there and laugh at you and say, ha ha, people in the northern hemisphere look up and pray to God. People in the southern hemisphere look up and pray to God. And they're both looking in opposite directions, so how can they look at the same point? Well, we don't know how they can look at the same point. We do know that there's a geometry that's implied by this. Now, what do I mean a geometry that's implied by this? The geometry that most of us learned in school was Euclid's geometry. And it was constructed, if you remember, they had axioms and you had to prove little theorems and so on. I don't even know that they teach geometry anymore. Probably got pushed out of the curriculum by all the other urgent life-changing courses. So we don't teach that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but in Euclidean geometry, if you remember, there were a set of axioms. One of the axioms in that Euclidean geometry was this one. If you have a line and you have a point not on the line, how many parallel lines can you draw through the point? And Euclid said one, because it's the axiom is supposedly intuitively obvious. Well, it was intuitively obvious up until the 19th century when some mathematicians got saying, wait a minute, how do we know that there's only one parallel line that can be drawn through that point? And they got to be thinking, well, you know, there's no way to check that, because we can't go out far enough to see. And if you want to look at it, look at, a, at a, the globe, if you have a globe at home. And you can see on the globe, because of spherical geometry problems, it's not true. Euclid doesn't work there. Uh, but in non-Euclidean geometry, there's one geometry that says there are two or more lines that can be drawn through there that are all parallel, turn out to be parallel. Another geometry says there are no lines that you can draw through the point. And both of these can be completely and rigorously proved. So the problem is you can build all kinds of geometries and prove that they have internal consistency. Theorem A follows from theorem B and so on and so on. All logically consistent. But it depends on what axioms you feed in at the beginning. And what may be is that if this is the earth and you have someone here praying, someone here praying, that in effect our line of sight is bent so that no matter where you are, if you, if you could look 
infinitely far, all lines would converge on the throne of God. There's some sort of weird geometry that goes on here. Because we know scripturally that whenever God appears, people are looking up. He doesn't say, go pray to the earth. He says, look to me, look up. So, this is just another little thing about don't laugh at scripture prematurely. And don't buy into people that are skeptic. No, just, no, it just means it doesn't, the universe isn't Euclidean. So, tell me some more. Try that one on him and see what happens. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 is another section of scripture. Now let's observe this, this text, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There's resurrection. By the way, now that we've studied the cross of Christ and we studied the resurrection of Christ and now we're studying the ascension session, do you see how slowly you need to read the New Testament text? can't speed read this stuff. There is so much packed in every one of these verses. I mean, Paul, in verse 20, he spins through this stuff at 40 miles an hour. You talk about a guy that packed his teaching. I mean, after you listen to Paul, I, I can't imagine not having to listen to this guy four or five times. I mean, without a Bible. They, this wasn't scripture when he wrote this. You know, you know, you're sitting out there, and if you were literate and had a very expensive parchment, you might be able to take shorthand. You didn't have any tape recorder. And this guy spins off this stuff to you. Well, no wonder it takes the church centuries to regurgitate and think about what did the guy say? You know? This is thick stuff. He says, The Father raised the Son from the dead and seated him at his right hand someplace called the heavenlies or the spiritual area. Far above, now verse 21 qualifies what those heavenlies are. So here we go again, strange area. Remember in verse 20 when it says he raised him from the dead, are we talking about Jesus' deity or his humanity? humanity. We're talking about a physical body. What's the implication then about location? It has to be located somewhere. Jesus' body has to be located at some point. It's not an infinitely big body. Jesus may only have been less than six feet tall. That's all we're talking about here. A body that may be five foot eleven. And it's located someplace and it's still five foot eleven. It's not five thousand feet. It's five foot eleven. Still the same body. Resurrection body. It's located somewhere. Well, that's the problem. We don't, can't see where it's located. But Paul describes the scene. He says it's at his right hand. So wherever this is, it's in the very throne room of God. The place, by the way, surrounded by the rainbow. Signature for the Noahic covenant. He's at the Father's right hand. Far above, wherever this place is, Notice, notice it's locus. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Isn't that pretty encompassing? What, is it, what does that say? It's saying that above all powers and principalities and angels and everything, about all the creation, Jesus Christ is now in the high ground. I'm going to come back to this later on. In the military, one of the objectives always in a battle is to take the high ground. This is why there was such trauma when I was going to college, and uh, I never will forget the evening when Sputnik went up. The funny part was, that very evening, the head of NASA had, was going to come. We had all the student body of MIT in Kresge Auditorium over there by the river, and and this guy was supposed to speak on America's space program. And those of you who are old enough to remember, remember that we had some very bad failures. 
because we had this thing, the Viking rocket and so on, we had it on the pad down there in Florida, and the thing got off the pad and blew up. I mean, the American space program was a real problem. And all of a sudden, bam, here comes Sputnik, which, by the way, was observed first at Aberdeen Proving Ground, about 500 feet from my building. And that, so now, all of a sudden, Russia's taken the high ground. There was such an air of depression when that happened. I can remember it. It was just like when Day Kennedy got shot. It was that kind of an emotional upheaval that, oh, man, you know, communism has got the high ground. And so we fought and, and so on to get back into the space race. Well, the space race is a military race. It's a race to who controls the high ground. And it's the same thing. You can go into the Civil War, Battle of Gettysburg. Who controlled the high ground? It's always that, again and again, the high ground. Keep that in mind. It's going to come up again and again now in the session of Jesus Christ. And here, in, in verse 21, it's part of the high ground that in this battle, and this is where the church age, I'm taking you through this slowly because I'm laying the foundation for this church age thing this inner advent between first and second advent of Christ, the church, what the church is all about, and what we're all about as individuals. But we've got to get the cosmic setting. There's something new that happens in verse 21 that was not true in the Old Testament. He is now, we have a human being at the Father's right hand. We never had a human being at the throne of the universe, ever before. Jesus Christ, in his humanity, sits at the helm of the universe. What a cosmic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And far above all rule and authority. Yes, Satan is here. Yes, there are evil powers. Yes, Daniel saw them as the, the demons that control Persia and the demons that would control Greece and the great empires and the principalities and the powers of darkness. But the high ground has already been taken by a member not of the angelic creation, but a member of the human race that was made lower than the angels. You're starting to see there's a revolutionary thing being proclaimed here. This is the first time in history that the creation under the angels is now above the angels. A transform has happened. And verse 21 goes so far as to say, not only in this age, but for all time. Jesus Christ is Lord. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, by the way, here's the picture of what the Lordship is talking about. He outranks every creature in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And He put all things in subjection under His feet. Now, we're going to see that's not quite literally true yet. He put all things potentially under Jesus Christ's feet. And this gets into the rationale for why things happen in our lives in the church age. There's something going on in the church age that's related to the ascension and session. So that's why we're making a deal of this. Okay, that's Ephesians. And it describes Jesus, after he gets there, he's in a place called heavenlies. And wherever that place is, geometrically in rank and privilege and power and authority, it's above all evil forces. Okay, now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. One of the things that you'll notice happening to you if you follow through these scriptures that we're going through the next couple of times as we go through this event, I think what you're going to find as you meditate on this and pray about it and think about it and read Scripture is that you will find your, your vision is less of what the Spirit is doing in your own heart and you, if you think more outwardly as to what is going on in the big scheme of things. Now we'll come back to our, the personal Christian life, but right at this point, relate to, to a cosmic thing going on here. I mean, this is greater than the solar system. This is greater than our galaxy. This is for the entire universe. Talk about thinking big. The, uh, the, the, the most brilliant astrophysicist of our time hasn't got anything compared to this concept. Big Bang, all the rest of the cosmological speculation that goes on, funded by taxpaying Christians, 
so that they can get non-Christian theories made. Uh, that whole schema is, is peanuts compared to what the Bible is saying. These guys haven't even given a thought. We have, out in Arizona in the desert, we have these big radio telescopes waiting to hear if there's life in the universe. Of course there's life in the universe. They're called angels. And they're not some weird creatures from the nth dimension because at the helm above them, who is there? Jesus Christ that you don't believe in, you know? It's amazing the irony of a generation of people who have a technology never before in the history of the human race trying to find if there's life in the universe, listening to antennas for peeps and signal-to-noise ratios that are in the right do domain, when the Lord Jesus Christ sits, probably laughing at them, saying to the Father, gee, you want to send a peep down to him? All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Now, here's Peter's version. Now, we've had the writer to Hebrews tell us. We've had Paul tell us. Now, Peter joins in. You see, this was not some Pauline thing. This was, permeates the New Testament. He describes it. He says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. See, there's that angelic warfare going on again. And who has the high ground in that warfare? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does this give you some inkling of what the first century Christians must have been thinking when they were faced with the dilemma, are you going to worship Kyrios Kaiser? Or are you going to be one of those stubborn right-wing... When they said, he is Kyrios. He is, that's the Greek word for Lord. When he said he was Lord, all this rich, this rich vision was incorporated inside that word Lord. It wasn't just he's a Lord in the sense of a king. It was greater than that. The Lord Jesus was Lord because he was above the stars. Now think how that hits a Roman. Roman sits there, and they had some idea of the stars, and, and Caesar, you know, he was the great human ruler on earth, but still we don't know for sure, Mount Olympus and Zeus and all the rest of these gods and goddesses and the destiny of Rome, and gee, what's going to happen? The Christians could go way above that, way above that. And they could say that ultimately it's not Caesar or your Mount Zeus. Or, or Zeus. Ultimately, I should say Jupiter for Romans, ultimately it's who is Lord. And the person who is Lord isn't Caesar. He sits in Rome. We worship the Kyrios at the right hand of the Father of the universe. No comparison. And therefore, we are not going to be intimidated by some goon squad that Caesar sends down here. You see what it does? It, it shapes up loyalties. It puts steel in backbones to have this vision of the universe because nothing can stop it. Because if you are in union... With the, with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in the heavenlies, far above principalities and powers, ultimately they don't have a say in this. Whatever they do is, is filtered down through a, a bureaucracy, a spiritual bureaucracy. But it, it, they don't originate it. So the ferocity of Satan, who seeks whom he may devour as a roaring lion, is largely a facade. It's a grand act trying desperately to distract our attention from the risen, ascended, and seated Lord Jesus Christ. Trying to make us think that he has all this wonderful, great power, and we ought to be afraid, and we ought to do what he wants, and uh, we have to walk around fearful that something might happen and it's all out of control, when our Savior, who died on the cross, is at the Father's right hand. Now, this sets up the basis for the church age.
Now we want to move to Ephesians chapter 4 and spend the rest of our time looking at Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68. So I guess the best way of doing this is, is turn to Psalm 68 and uh, hold the place. And then flip over to Ephesians 4. And we're going to go back and forth between these two passages. In Ephesians 4, this is a passage on the church. And you know, here's again, it's one of those neat things you read in Paul. You get reading of, he's dealing with a real church, real people, real situation. And he's trying to deal with a, with a problem of uh, lack of unity in the congregation. So he comes to what we would call a sociological problem. And instead of taking three courses in sociology at the University of Athens, Paul invokes Old Testament doctrine. And the way he does that, in a most marvelous way, to introduce the issue of spiritual gifts. And we, we're not going to go into spiritual gifts right now. But when he, in verse 7, makes the point that every believer has a grace. That if you, are, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're gifted. And that gift isn't for you. That gift is for other people. You may have the gift of mercy, the gift of, of discernment, the gift of wisdom, the gift of teaching. But it's, they're all service gifts. They're where you fit and the overall body of Christ. Well, verse 7 says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now he stops. Doesn't go any further. And for the next verse, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, he stops and he deals with what is Christ's gift. And this is, this is amazing. This is why I say, well... <laughs> Paul must have been the kind of guy that you couldn't discuss how do you brush your teeth without getting involved in the Trinity. He gets into deep theology at every point. He was talking about you know interpersonal relationships. How's that one for a nice politically correct way of saying it? And instead of going the sociological, psychological route, all of a sudden, he pulls up this passage out of the Old Testament with some weird thing about Yahweh God and says, now, now you understand about gifts. Uh, do? What, what's the gift? Okay, so let's see if we can follow his logic. Christ's gift. And that gift is grace given to, we'll just draw a stick person there, a, a believer. He's saying every believer has a grace. Therefore, it says, the scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above. So there's the phrase. Now remember we went to these previous three verses. Ephesians 1, Hebrews 4, 1 Peter 3. And we, had, we read through the language. We've seen that language before. It's stereotypical language that classifies this ascension and session thing. Everybody convinced of that? That's what, see, you see that in the text. It's a standard way of referring to this. So here it comes. Here it comes right in verse 10. He ascended far above all the heavens. There's that plural heavens again. He ascended all above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now in verse 11, he goes right back to the church at Ephesus and he says, and by the way, he gave apostles, prophets, and these gifted people. Well, when we read in our margin, where did that quote come from? We read it came from Psalm 68. So now we've got to go back over to Psalm 68 and get a drift of what is going on over in Psalm 68. And we're not going to finish this tonight because it involves a, quite a bit of Old Testament imagery. So let's just start, though, and get a, a running head start into Psalm 68. Those of you who study Bible will have it keyed, and you'll see the key over there in Ephesians keys you back to Psalm 68, verse 18. 
So if you'll turn in Psalm 68 to verse 18, just read, let's read that verse. And by the way, I want, I want an observation. As we read that verse, notice there's something different in the way it reads in Ephesians. Paul changed something. In Psalm 68, 18, Thou hast ascended on high, Thou hast led captivity captives, Thou hast received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Well, the first two clauses are what he quotes. Thou hast ascended on high, Thou hast led captive captives, and you have received gifts among men. Anybody see something different? The way Paul quotes it. Check the last clause. What's the verb in Psalm 68:18? It's receive. Right? But when he quotes it in Ephesians 4, what does he do? He changes the verb. He gave gifts to men. Now, when you see that kind of thing going on, it's, a, it's what we call an apostolic commentary. What, what the apostles do is they cite an Old Testament text and they see truth in that they want us to see. And so they'll, like they, it's almost like they paraphrase it. So now we've got to figure out, before we figure out what's going on with the receive and the give, we've got to go on to what's the context of verse 18 in Psalm 68. Well, the first safe thing to do is look up at the first verse. If you turn to Psalm 68 at the top, who wrote the psalm? It is a psalm of David. Okay? So now what are you going to do? Now that you know Psalm 68 is a Davidic psalm, you go back to the frame of reference, the Bible frame of reference we've been talking about, and where does that place it in Old Testament history? Before or after the exile? Before the exile, right? This is at what time, how would you characterize Israel's history uh, at the time of the rise and reign of David? Think about the events that have occurred historically. When was the nation born? In Egypt? The Exodus. What has the nation gone through? Went through the desert, picked up the law. And from the time it picked up the law until the time of David, what has been? Has the nation really been settled? No, it's been an upheaval, hasn't it? And it, it, it's, uh, things have gone wrong. They tried to conquest. They got it half done. Uh, the, the ark has gotten captured by the Philistines. All kinds of things have happened. So, in Psalm 68, if this is Davidic, and this, uh, this is at a time of David's reign, what are we going to do when we say in verse 1, where he says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. And it goes on in verse 5 and 6. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Verse 7, O God, when you did go forth before thy people, when you did march through the wilderness. Okay, what event is that? Let's start linking it up with Old Testament history. Right in here, conquest and settlement, right? So it says, the earthquake, the heavens dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou didst shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God, you confirm your inheritance, and so on and so forth. Uh, kings of armies, verse 12, flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. Uh, it's, it's, it ta- verse 14, the Almighty scattered the kings. It was snowing in Zalman. This is all during the conquest period. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Then, verse 18, What you want to do is just think about Psalm 68 this week and try to put yourself in David's position. And while you do, look in the notes on page 8 and look up at the bottom of page 8 in the notes. There are two verses, two sections that I want you to look at. 
And after you look at those two verses, I want you to compare what you find with Psalm 68, that first verse. Rise up, O God. Look, if you want to take a pencil and just note this, uh, in, on page 8, look at that verse reference, Numbers 10.35 and Joshua 3.3. 3. Okay? Look at the language in those passages. And then compare, see if you notice any parallels between those two passages of Scripture and what you see in Psalm 68.1. And what this will do is starts to shape for what we're going to do next week where we're going to go into this business of what is going on that God has ascended. What's David talking about here? It's something that happened in David's time, not in Sinai, not in the conquest and settlement period, but something went on in David's time that he's looking at and then he sees this, and in vision, he goes beyond what he sees to this great truth. And then Paul picks this up and applies it to Christ. And something that you want to look at also as you do this is ask yourself, if you were a lowly believer in the Ephesian congregation, and you, were, you had enough background in Judaism to know Psalm 68, Okay, so you knew Psalm 68. What would you have thought when Paul applies that psalm to Jesus Christ as a Jew? You're looking at Psalm 68. We're going we're to work with that. And then all of a sudden, here's this apostle. He walks into the synagogue and he quotes Psalm 68 and he applies it to Jesus Christ. What would happen to your thinking if you were there? Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that we have a risen and ascended and seated Lord Jesus Christ. And may you always recall this thought to our minds, that when we seem so down, so depressed, so defeated by the powers of this world system, by the God of this world who seeks whom we may devour, may we be reminded through your Spirit, may he stimulate us and cause us to look up and realize that the Lord Jesus has captured the high ground that counts and that we are in union with Him in this great battle that goes on in the church age. We thank you now through His name. Amen.